Welcome back to the Offscript Podcast. This is episode 48. Today we are ju- joined by a man who's not appeared on the channel as you know it, but he was our inaugural guest way back in 2019. Phil Samakis, how you doing, man? Good. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. Yeah. Welcome back to Long time coming. Long time coming. Um, yeah, the plan for today, for everyone who's listening, is to discuss uh, an off-season plan, protocol, strategy, however you want to look at it, across a 12-month period for someone who's just come out of a show um, or a very lean physique um, and how you'd approach, say, the t- following 12 months before you get back to prepping again. Um, so before we get into that, how's things with yourself? Good. I've had a lot on at the moment. Uh, since we last spoke, uh, I've become a coach. So that's random because as soon as COVID hit, I was working from home, so I had actually time to do it. I moved house again. I was meant to be getting married, but COVID. So that's happened in November. <clears throat> and that's about it, really. It's just been a bit a bit manic. You just got a brand new job as well, like a salary job. Mm, yeah, so I it was really random. Last Thursday, I just got approached by this recruiter and she said I've got in, a in an alleyway somewhere well on LinkedIn so it's basically <laughs> the same thing really it is yeah um, and I normally just ignore them but what she said was kind of really specific to what I do I was like mm-hmm. and so I heard about it on Thursday had an interview on Friday and then I had two interviews on Monday and then got off the job on Monday so mm, good stuff man days. <laughs> wow it was a big step up so should be fun so now for the next two months I think I might potentially be getting put on garden leave, which for those who don't know what that is, you basically, because I'm going to a competitor, um, they just have to stay at home for two months and not work yeah. and pay me. So, Oh, nice. <laughs> it's good. That's not bad. Good. <laughs> nice. Gives you some time to fix the house as well. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully that happens. What, um, uh, so is, do you have any other plans for the next two months then? What are you going to do, do with it? Uh, I'll probably use that to focus a little bit more on my actual coaching and to do up my study. I'm getting it tiled on Monday whilst I'm away. And then when I come back, I'm going to basically do it all up because at the moment I've been working off this sofa for the past three months, yeah. which has been all right, uh, but it's not the same as a desk. I want my desk back. It's about it, really. The next two months, go to the gym and do my study. Good stuff. And I'll be seeing you on, I think I'm seeing you in, in this month at some point, aren't I? Uh, 20th? Yes. Yes. So I'll be seeing you as well. On the, this What's month. going on there? I've got, mate, I'm going to be going back and forth from Birmingham ends, like, so much, like, over the next, like, couple of weeks. I've got to go back for uni-related stuff. I've then got to go back up for um, Fresco, because he's competing in BNBF. So I said I'd go to that. Um, and then I'm going back up later on in month to see Phil. So that'll be exciting. Mm. And then uh, I will also be going back up in September for graduation. So that's uh, that's where I'm at currently. I always imagine you to be that guy who just didn't turn up to graduation. Oh, no, I will. I'll, but I'll turn up in cargo pants Jordans, this exact hat on. Um, and just... just just rob the uni and just... You can't even fucking throw your hat in the air, can you, anymore? No, you can't. It's bullshit. Health, health and safety. Yeah. I don't even know if I could be asked to rent a gown. Like It's like 200 quid or something, I think, for a gown. 
It's just kind of ridiculous. Uh, oh no, have I lost you both? Uh oh, guys. Well, we're still recording, so um, I'll try and fill the gap while we wait. For oh, you Can you hear oh, us? You're back. Thank you. Thank you. The, the Wi-Fi cut out for a second. I don't know what happened there. I was trying to fill the gap with the audience. I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to solo this. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at currently. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get going. I'm also in a position now where I'm starting to put more time into coaching and actually focus on that, which I've not done at all this past year. Um, like studying has taken the, uh, the, the, the main road for me. So I will be... Focusing on that going forward, and I'm in the process at the minute of building a website, which is very exciting. So, more to come from that soon. My week has been fantastic because I had my first normal shit in eight weeks. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. Um, nice shit, man. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, things are they seem to be on the men. So obviously, I had my infusion on Monday, hmm. and uh, everything's been all right since then. I got another one in a week and a half, and then another one in four weeks. Uh, so we'll go from there. Good stuff. Other than that, I'm going to see how I'm over the weekend, and then might go back to the gym on Monday. Interesting. What? Is the gym, I have a big question for you, Joe. Yeah. What is the gym going to? Actually, we could probably do our, a whole like other podcast talking about this. But what is the gym going to be like for you going back? What 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 will the gym be? Well. First of all, it's getting back in the door. Because I won't lie, like this time it's been different for some reason for me. Like it's like going back is mentally more difficult than it was before. I don't know why. Maybe because last time well, I didn't have the opportunity to, to go back from being that shit position to go into the gym because it was still closed last year. Yeah. Um, but I just want to be able to be able to train. Our volume would be minimal because I've come from literally barely going outside. Um, so any sort of stimulus will be good. Food's fine um, and stuff like that. So it's just going to be like a probably good couple of months of just building my way back up to normal. And then hopefully probably towards the back, like right at the end of the year, if I can start going full pelt again um, and then take a good, <clears throat> good year of just being able to train if I can. Um, but I think it will be the last time, if shit hits the fan again, it will be the last time I try and push things. So. What, from what you said to me last time when we spoke about it, it was more so this time the fact that the doctors did not scale or adjust medication according to accordingly. Yeah. The thing, now I'm in better contact with the consultant. So it's like... I have text message access to to her at all times, whereas before I didn't. So weekly, I'll just say if there's any weight adjustments and things like that. But you know, I've always pushed quite hard in terms of putting weight on. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not even from force feeding or anything like that. It's just when I'm in a groove, my body wants to grow. So I don't know. Um, it's not like it's not like coming off the back of losing like 20 pounds, your body won't just automatically start to put pounds back on like that. No. Um, so we'll see, but if I can keep everything, if I can keep the disease under control, 
the way I did for those couple of months. Um, should be all right. Yeah. Good stuff. Right, coming back around to Phil and uh, our question today that we'll be discussing. Um, let's hear Phil first. Uh, let's start with right from the very beginning. The person has walked off stage. They've barely showered off their coats of tan. They're just disgustingly lean. And um, what do they do now? Well, there's a few theories on this that people say. So one of them is the, and I believe it's based on what you did, Jermaine, of reverse very, very slowly. And then there's the get the healthy weight, if you like, and then go from there. So, so I've still got messages coming along. So there's a few things here. Yes, your insulin sensitivity is going to be through the roof when you come off prep. But, and here's the big but, insulin sensitivity changes according to what cells it is, right? your fat cells are going to be a lot more insulin sensitive than your muscle cells at that point. And when I refer to keeping insulin sensitivity a lot of the time, what I'm basically trying to refer to most time is keeping sensitivity in the muscle. So you can still have excess body fat and still have insulin sensitivity in the muscle. That's, you know, that's fine in that sense. Um, But so for someone coming back straight off the stage, my preferred way would be, again, it depends on the person, but for the majority of the time, reverse slowly. Unless I know it's someone that can get lean very easily, like myself, I normally blow up after my show because I can't be bothered, uh, but I can get lean very easily. Most people, it'd be better to reverse them out of it and then just give them a little bit of food, a little bit of food, a little bit of food, just gradually, as and when they need it. So... An example now I just did recently with one guy. Uh, he went on a cruise and I cut him down very low. He was actually leaner than he was when he first competed for his last show. Uh, and he was on about 2,000 calories extra. But like he had stomach veins and everything. By the end of it, he was really, really lean. And then reverse now that, even just I bumped his carbs up by 80. And I think the lowest his carbs went on that cut were about, I want to say, 350. I bumped them up by 80 and he was putting on weight very, very quick. And everything was just starting to fire. And what you want is it's a balance. If you feed them too much at that point, you all just start getting fat. If you feed them too little, you're not really giving them enough fuel to really start to work harder. And that's kind of the difference. So coming off a of prep, coming off a show where most likely you've been doing fairly low volume towards the end for the majority of people. Um, you know, their volume will typically go down in prep. They'll still try and keep the load high, if you like, or they'll still try and keep their heavy lifts in. Uh, but I'd start to add more volume back in, get things moving around a bit more, if you like, uh, start creating more of a need for energy in their workouts. And then basic physics, if you like, the total energy that's used is going to be the work done. The work done in this case will be the weight of the wherever they're moving and the height. So as I know a bench press, it moves like two feet off your chest. You know, a bar that's 100 is going to use less than a bar that's 120. Basic stuff. So as, as you progress afterwards and as your total load goes up, you're going to use more anyway. It's going to put more demand on you so you can start to make use of this food. When you get it past the point of... So you're going to accrue some body fat at that point anyway. But what you want to do is minimize it 
try and keep it at a stable level because over you've got different set points. These set points can change over time. So again, and this is where genetics also come in. Some people might just naturally just find it very easy to maintain 10% year round. And that's kind of their set point. But still pushing past that is very difficult. You typically see this quite often, a lot of black dudes actually. They'll have a typically quite low set point. So they'll be very lean year round without really trying. But getting below that, that takes a lot of effort. Where someone else like myself, my set point, it can be quite high, where it used to be high, but I can get lean very, very quickly. I, I dropped like nine kilos in eight weeks without going to the gym for half of it. And all I did was a few walks. Yeah. So it's it, it depends on the individual. But what you want to do is try and keep the set point as low as possible and then make the body used to using energy how it should. And what I mean by that, you can you can teach your body how to store energy essentially and how to use it. So if you give your body everything it needs when it needs it and nothing extra, you can teach it how to make use of it. So a, a, a way that I would start off, for example, I would, let's say someone after the show, no carbs in any of the meals other than pre and post workout, start up in them, start up in them, maybe start up in some in the morning. You still have those gaps where you've got a bunch of meals with no carbs in between. So the point in, yes, you've got a little bit in the morning, basically to just fill you up because at that point you'll still, it's hard to hold on to a lot of carbs in the back end of prep close to shows. You find that you eat something and you just burn through it most of the time. Um, but you still got the times in between where if you like, you've got maintenance calories. So just enough to get you past just enough protein and fats and that's it. And then you've got your part pre and post workout where you've got an influx of carbs. So when you go into your workout, you're not going to be scavenging for energy anywhere else. You've got it available. So that's kind of the thought process. Then the rest of the off season, if you like, you kind I, I like to keep people fairly lean. Now, there's a reason for this. Yes, it's been shown. Yes, if you get people think oh, as soon as you get fat, you stop um, putting on muscle. That that's the same thing. They say, Oh, you lose all insulin sensitivity. Like I said, insulin sensitivity, it changes. So, yes, you can you can have more insulin resistance in your fat than you do muscle. But it doesn't mean you're going to put on uh, muscle at any lesser weight if you start getting fat. It just means you do have more work to do later on. And that will be a detriment overall. That's the way I see it anyway. So, But I do like to keep people fairly lean. I like to be able to see visible abs most of the time. Yes, there's certain periods where you might push very, very hard. But generally, my focus would be to keep pushing food as high as possible whilst keeping body fat at a relatively good level. If you go to a point where you just start pushing food like mad and then you end up having to do cleanup diets constantly, it's counterproductive. So if you're going to take, let's say, a year out to grow, you don't want to be in a position where you're constantly you know, bloating yourself up, putting on loads of weight and then cutting down, putting on weight, cutting down. And this kind of comes back to focus as well of, looking at the scales unless you're an open guy uh, where you know uh, that you just want to put on size at all costs and you don't really care at that point 
don't really bother looking at the scales, especially for something like classic. I barely bother looking at the scales with anyone because it's how you look. Mm. People who chase people who just chase scale numbers most of the time look shit, and they lose track of what they're actually fucking doing. But <laughs> everyone I can think of off the top of my head who all they post is how much their weight's gone up, they all look shit. Yeah. I know guys that are like 15, 20 kilos heavier than me, but look smaller than me because the focus is in the wrong area. And that's kind of where it is for me. Classic, the only thing I'll keep an eye on is someone's, let's say, close to their limit. And I don't want them to push past it. That's about it. That just means, okay, I need to make some adjustments on food here. Um, but again, in open, weight isn't everything. Most guys with me, they all, their weight won't change that much at the start. But then they'll get to a point. So again, that client that I brought down really low in his cruise, and now he's growing again. He's nearly at the same weight now as he was when he started with me, but he's way bigger and he's way leaner. So, and he's going to probably go to classic slash open because he's quite big. So we'll see where he ends up. Um, but really, where you would tell the difference with the weight he's on stage. So my big off season I did in well it sort of started in 2018 and ended in 2019 my weight changed by three kilos it just went three kilos up in the space of like a year uh, but on stage I was about 12 no, 12 to 14 kilos heavier and that's where the difference really comes down that's where you notice it yes. so if you're just bloating yourself up in off season <clears throat> not necessarily good for anything it's it's just no. It's just numbers. It's the same as no one cares how much you lift on stage. It's the same as no one cares how much you weigh. Yeah. And that's really it. It's a good metric to have. But so yeah. So focus for an off season would just be that keeping things at a steady pace, keeping your momentum throughout. And to do that, obviously, everything else needs to be on track. So making sure digestion's on track and keeping your hunger up. That's a big one. And just trying to feed as much as you can. So get that person eating as much as they can. So when prep comes around, it'll be a lot easier. That's essentially it. Everyone, again, that's competitive, that I coach, is on a stupid amount of food. But they're all pretty lean. I've got a girl that's on 3,000 calories. She's grown into figure. She's natural. And she's starving right now. She only weighs like 63 kilos. But, you know, she's growing. And she's still lean. Like, you can still see all her waist and stuff. So it's... Yeah, that for me, sort of the, the and again, I, I've taken inspiration on this from a lot of other people. Like, again, the classic Milos. Milos does stuff like this a lot. Obviously, Milos is very extreme. Uh, Patrick, when I went to a few of his seminars, that was quite nice because I, well, I, that was my thinking originally. And then obviously, I learned a few things from him anyway. But at the moment, it just kind of seems like a little bit of a. Where everyone's just starving themselves. Guys are coming in extremely lean on like 1500 calories as a light heavyweight. Why? Yeah. And the, I think the, the, con, you know, the condition aspect's kind of been blown out, but everyone thinks how shredded you can come in. People are losing muscle, yeah. coming in tiny and looking worse than they did before. I'm, I'm intrigued to know what the like T3, T4 comparisons would be there for a lot of people. Um, obviously, 
like uh, one thing that you're talking about and is massively overlooked and I totally agree with is that food is incredibly anabolic and if you ignore it slash neglect it slash misconstrue what the fuck we're doing then you're losing out on half of the equation I think in terms of growth like yeah like, genuinely it's it's everyone's everyone's biggest limitation is how much they can eat in yeah. terms of growing it's how much you can eat digest and absorb that's your biggest limitation most of the time and when you start throwing more drugs into the mix it just makes that worse yeah. there's so again in an off season there's very certain drugs are used for specific reasons the majority of cycles people do i'm not a fan of because it limits you too much most uh, again this is going to sound controversial on this most drugs most steroids will all put on muscle at the same rate Masteron will put on muscle the same rate as something like Decker will. But people won't accept that because they'll be like, the anabolic androgenic rating. But when you realise how that was actually, how they came up with that, you realise how ridiculous it is and how it makes absolutely no sense. Masteron, everyone says, oh, it's a hardening agent. You only use it for contest prep. It doesn't put on muscle. Well, all the research that went into it originally was specifically for it growing cattle. Yeah. And then it went on to people as like an anti-wasting thing. I've used Rastrons in off-season. I got great results from it. All, all, my, all steroids, to an extent, accrete <clears throat> protein at the same rate. Do you think then the aesthetic um, relationship that some drugs have with certain effects on like body, so like how thin the skin looks, stuff like that, is that purely down to androgenicity and, I guess, the effects that a certain compound would have on water retention and stuff like that? Is that pure? Yeah, so, again, a lot. what it gets to is, so now that you know that most drugs build muscle at the same rate, mm. you start to then take these different drugs, mainly for the side effects. So, again, there are slight other differences, like some, you've got genomic and non-genomic bindings. So, if it binds external of the cell internal um that will change some of the behavior but most of the time you are taking things kind of for the side effects at that point so let's say testosterone testosterone is great in the sense that it's it's predictable you know what it's going to do <clears throat> if you get blood tests whilst on testosterone you kind of know what you're looking at but it's very dirty in the sense that it converts loads to both the hc and estrogen it's it'll bind to everything yeah <laughs> such a well um what's the word i'm looking for it does a lot of things versatile it's so versatile in the body uh whereas something like mastron for example it's going to build muscle at the same rate you're not going to have the issues with estrogen yes you still need estrogen estrogen is neuroprotective and it'll protect kidneys other organs as well um but DHT, on the other hand, is also going to have a massive effect on your strength and mm. your central nervous system, how you recover in sessions. So you get that benefit without the other. So then something like Anadrol. Anadrol is a whole different beast on its own, right? Anadrol is an extreme. Anadrol itself on paper shouldn't really do anything. Okay. But it converts over 30 different things in your body. Uh, I believe the main one responsible for the strength aspect of it that you notice is Mestanolone that converts to, but yeah, so again, Anadrol, you're basically taking it for the side effects. Uh, on itself, on paper, 
basically does nothing. It doesn't really bind to anything. Like on paper, it's shit. Mm. Obviously, we know it it works, right? So, yeah, drugs in an off season are a big one. I'm a massive fan of things like Primo, Mastron. Sometimes you can put NPP in there or Deca for. I mainly like for the joint benefits. Um, I, it's not the best for your brain health or your heart or your kidneys. I don't care if people say, oh, you know, you can run really high amounts of DECA and you don't get side effects. Side effects aren't a good judge of what's actually going on. Yeah. Right? Like people, the DECA only cycles where, they're like, oh, it's completely valid. You feel fine on it. Yeah, you might feel fine, but it's horrendous for your brain. Yeah. Horrendous. It basically turns you into a bit of an ape. Yeah, uh, trends the worst for it in the sense that it basically it shrinks your frontal cortex and makes your amygdala, which is the part in the middle that basically look like little almonds. I mean, amygdala means almonds in Greek. Um, so it basically turns you into a bit of an ape. It takes away the impulse control, the critical thinking, and kind of just <laughs> makes you a bit erratic. That's that's if you've spoken to any of the old school dudes that just used to blast Decker like stupid amounts of it they're all a bit depressed they're all a bit weird and they're all a bit gay <laughs> interesting uh so yeah. i guess that conversation then when it comes into compound use in an off-season setting is okay uh, how how selective can you be with androgenicity and side effects and before before you touch on that though coming from contest prep where well for the most part drugs are high You've come out of that. Would you prefer a client to completely come off or cruise or what? I prefer cruise, but a high cruise. So either something like 125 testosterone and maybe 200 Primo a week, which again, still basically a mini cycle. But Primo is so mild. It's really, really mild. You can tolerate a lot of Primo. Um, so something like 125 test and 200 Primo would be absolutely fine in my eyes. Or just 250 tests a week. You'll see people adding insulin. I know one guy, especially at the moment, is quite popular who does that. I, I think it's counterproductive. You're going to have no issues with insulin sensitivity at that point. And like I said, it might even make things worse. Um, I saw one guy who said, post-show, he, his condition was great. And it was like reversing. I think he was on 150 tests and maybe 150 primo. You know, very low amounts of that. It's a good amount of drugs. It's fine. Uh, but then he was doing quite a bit of insulin. And his weight was higher than it was in his off-season beforehand. Uh, but that is a temporary thing at that point. It's water. Yeah. It's water and it's just, you can store, you can physically store more carbs using exogenous insulin in a fast spike um, than just your own internal one. That's, that's very well documented that you can store more. So, again, something like that, yes, it's a great effect at the start, but in terms of sustaining that, it doesn't really give the option to drag it out. And insulin, it's great at what it does, obviously. Most people use it wrong, in my opinion. Most people use insulin, they kind of just get a pump out of it and they fill out, but they don't really get anything else from it. Um, because insulin on its own, if you take it, has no effect on protein synthesis. But in a, if you've got hyperaminoacidemia, basically just means you've got really high amounts of protein. So you've got a lot of amino acids in your blood because you've got a really high protein diet. Then it 
does directly stimulate an increased muscle protein synthesis. So that's, I'm kind of known for doing really high protein diets. Interesting. I use insulin. That's the reason. I wouldn't use insulin unless someone was already on a really high protein. Well, that's where people get, get it misconstrued with Milos. They're like, oh, he's a massive carbohydrate guy. If you look at what Milos promotes with some of his old fucking videos when he's talking in front of the chalkboard and stuff, he's talking about a 250-pound guy going up to 600 grams of protein a day. Like people just think, oh, he's, he uses insulin with his clients, sort of hypothetically. Um, um, it just gives them thousand carbs and then two hundred protein. It's not. It's fucking. It's very, very high protein and very, very high carbohydrate that's, as well. And that's so. the thing. So this was. I've seen again. People get very confused by this. So I think Cuba is quite outspoken in terms of he doesn't like uh, what Milos does and the whole. Everyone still thinks he's just doing a bunch of high volume, getting a pump, filling up with insulin, and that's it. Uh, so people just think, okay, when those people go and compete afterwards, they're just going to look a bit soft and lack density. That's not what he does. And that's where people like Cuba get confused. A lot of people have got the wrong idea about what he actually does. A lot of his stuff is low volume. Hmm. Typically half the workout will be one working set or two working sets. Yeah. And then he's got some like giant sets. But the giant sets still, they're not just repping things out. Each set has a different tempo. It's for a different reason. Most of the time, it's trying to maximize muscle damage, force negatives, slow negatives, stuff it like that. Amplifiers as opposed to just... Yeah, it's not just doing a bunch of... It's not just supersetting everything, for example, like you know, going from one to another, doing it a bit nearly till failure and then moving on. Everything, it, it's there to... And this is what another reason why I need insulin for it. To just get through that, you need to have enough energy to get through it. But afterwards, well, you need to recover fast enough because something like that is going to cause a lot of damage. And that's why so many guys blow up suddenly when they start doing that. It's because everyone says, oh, yes, you need to rest and recover in order to grow. His theory is just make recovery faster. <laughs> so. I, I like the uh, the theory in my head behind the extremely high protein paired with insulin and the response of that. Actually, does kind of make perfect sense in theory. Like, um, like the idea of because obviously, for for a lot of people, people don't necessarily understand that gluconeogenesis can occur through through breakdown of proteins as well. Yeah, but it's dependent on if you don't have enough carbs from elsewhere. If you've got an abundance of carbs from elsewhere. Why is your body going to waste energy trying to convert to it's just not going to happen? Yeah, exactly. And and then the, everyone you say there's a ceiling in terms of you know how much protein you can eat a single meal and muscle protein synthesis. Mm. There's not a study that newer studies now are starting to show because again the original ones were very flawed in my opinion. They were done on like pencil neck twinks or old ladies. Yeah, fasted in the morning using whey isolates as the protein source as a very clean source hmm. yes if you give someone something that they're fasted they don't even lift and you give them something that's going to digest so quickly of course there's going to be a percentage that goes to carbs of course yeah. makes perfect sense yeah. but if you give someone that's smashing gear it's got a high amount of nitrogen retention is smashing a bunch of carbs most likely as well this on even even at the point of 70 grams per meal of protein versus 40 
there's a significant jump. Mm. So it's not like Jay Cutler was eating 100 grams of protein a meal at one point. It's crazy. Man. Again, someone like Jay Cutler could make use of that because he, well, he was, he, he famously used to say, how much growth hormone? As much as you can possibly afford. Sky's the limit. So yeah, if you're on, you know, enough and you can build at that kind of rate, by all means. So I, I use high protein, but it's not with everyone. Yeah. Someone natural comes to me and they're just doing like your basic push pull legs, low volume split, that type of stuff. Yeah, there's no point for you to put them on two grams per pound. It'll do nothing for them. But someone like Niall, for example, uh, who you may have seen her post quite a lot, who's moved from the natty side to a natty side, and he can handle a lot. He's already got a lot of muscle on him, but he can handle a lot in the workout. Yeah, his protein went over 400. He was doing insulin, and he was growing like a weed, and he got leaner from it. What is, uh, what is your opinion then... Uh, around growth hormone and you know obviously it's a bit of a gray area in terms of pairing insulin and growth hormone because obviously insulin has IGF like we talk about IGF-1 as well so it's a like growth factor how, how would that compare in a off-season context so it, it depends on the goal if you're doing open gets to the point again where sky's the limit to an extent um, I'm not a fan of having to use insulin to just control blood sugar off growth hormone. I don't think you should be using growth hormone every single day. I mean, you can do, and you'll get more out of it if you do use it with insulin, like a lantus, a very slow acting one, and use stupid amounts of growth hormone. But from a longevity point of view, yeah, I'm not a fan of it. I don't think you need to take growth hormone every single day. I take growth hormone two times a week yeah. Uh, on my weakest body parts. And there's a reason for this. So when you, growth hormone does a ton of different things, right? It's a very long sequence of amino acids. And if you like each segment in that kind of does something different. When you inject growth hormone, you get a series of events that happens. So it, according to what point you kind of interrupt those chain of events, you'll change what your body does. So if you want to take it in the morning for faster cardio, yes, you're going to kind of in, you're going to time it to where you start again the fatty acid release, and then obviously in your cardio that's going to help because uh, what will happen is when you inject it, you'll start to release carbs from your liver, and then you start to produce like enzymes like lipase and stuff, and you'll start to also release fatty acids. They go around the blood. Obviously now you've got carbs in your in your blood. So you're going to start producing insulin and then that is going to combine to uh, with the growth hormone in the liver to create IGF-1. But simultaneously, you also start to get, obviously, insulin rise or whatever's in your blood at that point starts to get stored. So, for example, the, the fact that people say it makes you insulin resistant, the primary cause of that's actually the fats going back into storage. Yeah. It's not just having high blood sugar. Because it doesn't raise your blood sugar stupidly. Yeah. Like, if you just ate a lot, you would have higher... But what actually causes the insulin resistance is actually the triglycerides in your blood yeah. not being used and yeah. then getting back to storage. So in a prep, that's why you can get away with using like quite hefty amounts of growth hormone before cardio 
and you're not becoming insulin resistant. So that's why you get lean so easily mm. because the fats are just releasing quicker and you can use them. And this is also why something amazing to use alongside growth hormone is L-carnitine. Mm. You'll get a lot more out of growth hormone if you use L-carnitine with it, both from a fat loss perspective, but from a growing perspective as well. You will get way more out of it if you use L-carnitine. Some people even, if they get... Um, it normally comes in a powder, however you get it, and you mix it with uh, bacteriostatic water. What people start to do now is they'll actually, instead of just putting that water in, they'll put L-carnitine in it instead. Hmm. L-carnitine. So it's a solution of L-carnitine and growth hormone. Wow. So that's a common one. That, well, common. It's not common, but that's... We'll do like a, a growth and carnitine suspension injection, pretty much. Basically, yeah. And honestly, you can get a lot more out of it. Yeah. So you can use less and get the same result, or you can use the same amount and actually get more out of it in all aspects. But for example, using it twice a week, once you inject it, IGF-1 stays elevated the entire week. Hmm. It's not just a 24-hour thing. What lasts for 24 hours is the suppression, if you like, on your own, but that comes back straight away. So for me, for example, I was using it on my leg days and my back days. Those were my weakest parts. I would have elevated IGF-1 the whole week and you can feel it if it's real growth hormone I was doing two units pre and post workout with insulin okay. the timing was a bit odd though twice um, still we're talking here sorry still talking only twice a week as well yeah twice a week so two units pre-workout one hour intramuscularly mm. I do my insulin immediately pre-workout and then post-workout I do them both at the same time uh, both intramuscularly again just because i want the onset to be quicker and uh, you do get a bit of a quicker fatty acid release and energy to actually using your workout a bit more as well you shouldn't work out with weights to burn energy but it's a bonus and you do get a performance boost out of it because okay. as you know when you especially on low volume sets anything that's sort of relatively short like that you're not really using carbs that much it's more phosphogen yeah. So having fats will actually help. That's why a lot of people put fats in their pre-workout meals. Uh, do, 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 what was I going to? Yeah. So I'll have elevated IGF one the whole week then, and for me that's enough to grow at a good rate okay. without affecting anything else or running a high risk. But for an open guy, you could do it multiple times a day. Uh, I wouldn't go over three times a day for longevity perspective. Would you, would you potentially think about, um, would it be, would there be an argument for pairing the timing of pituitary release of growth hormone in the body to, um, to injection timings and stuff like that? Would there be any reason for doing that? Would that actually have any impact? So you mean, Waiting for yourself to have a pulse and then also ejecting it so you get double so, so or just like, trying to match it to your natural pulses. Somewhat. So like the, it, the body obviously has set, like a set rhythm in terms of when it releases yeah. hormones. Um, does it? Does is there any sort of context or reasoning for pairing it to that and matching it to that? Yeah. So so like I said, according to it, it's a long chain of events. Mm. Um, your the time where you produce the most will be before you well in your sleep basically so for general growth if you were for general growth there's a good argument to just do it all 
at once before you go to bed, basically. Uh, as then that chain of events just fully, fully happens without any interruptions. Yeah. By interruptions, I mean, you're not eating any food in that period of time or anything. You're not doing anything. Yeah. Just a chain of events that happens. Yeah. And this is, a, you know, the, think of babies, how much they sleep, mm. how fast they grow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can leave that chain of events to unfold. Then I typically... Um, pre, pre and post workout again for specific reasons um, but I would typically do pre-workout and pre-bed okay myself I do pre-workout and post-workout okay but yeah if, if you're doing it every day it'd be better to do it before bed in my opinion just to clarify for everyone watching this is not um, this is not medical advice that we are handing out this is not stuff that you should actually be doing. We do not condone uh, the use of um, legal compounds or, you know, performance enhancing drugs. Just always obey the law of your area. Exactly. Uh, but that being said, it is incredibly interesting to talk through, like, a pair theory with, like, practical application that's been used now for, what, 50 years almost at this point for a lot of these things. So, um Okay, so we, we've somewhat ran through off-season in terms of drug pharmacology. Yeah. So then going into a pre-contest phase, let's call it that, uh, the three months leading up to a prep, how would you approach that? And uh, I think I think this is probably very much context-dependent on yeah. how fat you actually are, of course, in the off-season. So let's say ideal situation, or let's say the majority of what my clients will look like before prep, They'll be relatively lean anyway. I would want to go through a period of doing quite high volume. Okay. Um, it's very hard to get fuller in prep. If you start off very full, a lot easier to maintain that. And the more food you can usually end up eating. Um, so again, some some sort of just try and push food as much as you can those final three months, get them as hard as possible. Do You can either just do the standard four by 15 type stuff, low rest, more metabolic work, if you like, if that's what they call it. Um, or you can just do giant set type stuff or, again, SST, Patrick Tour style stuff, yeah. very long sets, very long continuous sets. Um, try and volumize them as much as you can. So that could be an argument at a point where you'd want to use the least androgenic stuff. Um, for example, low test like testosterone is ridiculously and testosterone is more androgenic than trend. Yeah. Um, trends bizarrely not. It's weird, but um trend trends a whole different thing though. Very okay. much anabolic versus androgenic. Yeah, a trend's actually it kind of acts like a psalm. Mm. And well, I mean all steroids apart from test are a psalm to an extent. Yeah. That's why they were made. So yeah. steroid or psalm, but um Trends different mainly because it's the only one that interacts with the glucocorticoid receptor. But before prep, that's where you'd want to get your natural strength. And what I mean by that is you get artificial strength from something yeah, like you, Anadrol. We, we talked about this when we was actually doing a show wrap-up and it was talking about what, what drug muscle is and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you'd go in, before you go into a prep, you want to be able to be optimizing your natural ability to perform That's at the it. highest level before becoming dependent on other factors such as drugs and whatever. 
and, and that's where again something like that's where you could use something like NPP maybe because uh, NPP will cause more mineral retention, will help you with fullness. Yep. It'll make sure you know your joints all nice and loose at that point. Uh, whereas anything really that's DHT based, it will have an artificial effect on your strength. Mm. In powerlifting, for example, I've got a guy now who's one of the best at his weight. Uh, he's not far off beating like Pete Rubish and stuff okay. in America. He's he's not far off Larry Wheels either. Um, and he's competing and he's got a meet in seven weeks. He's the strongest he's ever been and feels the best he's ever felt now on master on and test. Mm. That's it. He'll be adding in a few other things closer to it, but um, I'm just taking powerlifting as an example because in powerlifting, most of your strength will come from your off-season or your hypertrophy phase beforehand. All that prepping for meat is, is peaking neurologically. That's all it is. Yeah. So some things like DHT, it takes a while for it to have that effect on you, but it's going to have a much greater effect. Um, and then close to time, that's where you can take acute things like on an anadrol, methyltren, halo, that type of shit. Um, so again, from bodybuilding perspective, you want to rely on things that are as li little androgenic as possible and have as small of an effect on your central nervous system mm -hmm. as possible. So then you've got more tools to play with when you go into prep. When you go into prep, that's where you can, you know, start things like Mastron, which will just progressively increase your strength throughout prep. And then close to it, when food starts to get low, that's where you can start to throw in things like Tren, which is going to hold on to muscle like nothing else. Yeah. And even closer, then you can start to throw in some oils and stuff, which will just, it would give you a bit of a polish, mm. if you like. Interesting. Okay, so I'm trying to now bring it round too, because of course there's going to be a fair few naturals who are going to watch this. Um, what what would the uh, process be for pre-contest for naturals? In my opinion, in terms of getting food very high, setting yourself up to be fairly lean before the prep, and then going into prep with that position where you've maximised all factors going in, that that all still applies, in my opinion. Yeah, naturals again. I, the approach is very similar. The main difference is obviously you cannot cut anywhere near as hard. Yeah. Uh, preps need to be a lot longer. You still see natural guys trying to do like twelve week preps, and they end up looking like string beans by the end of it. And there's a reason why. Yeah, they, they either look like a string bean or or they look six weeks out. So. Well, well, yeah. So, in my opinion, a natural prep should be twenty four weeks. Yeah. 24, 20 weeks, that's kind of the minimum I'd expect yeah. for natural prep to actually look good and go well. Unless, again, you've just got stupid genetics. Um, but the, the main thing with naturals is, for me, I think they... And maybe it's a UK thing. I don't know what they're like in other countries, but I don't really follow natural bodybuilding that much. Yeah. They all just seem to get really fat. <laughs> and yeah. I've even spoken to ones that have said now they've sort of regretted and they're like yeah I probably shouldn't have got that fat yeah. a lot of times just their coaches just feeding them and feeding them and feeding them mm -hmm. because they start quoting all that well as long as your muscle doesn't lose insulin sensitivity you're fine like yes but you're natural it's going to take you longer to cut anyways this is why actually I think there's been a massive adaptation of pre-contest 
for naturals now, especially. I feel like in the past couple of years, that's become a huge thing. Um, like I remember like before I prepped in 2019, I didn't actually see a massive lot of that across the board, like speaking to other natural competitors. Very few people were were doing a period of time longer than two weeks before jumping into a prep from an off season. Yeah. Um, and I think that's become more of a trend now. And I think it might be partially as just a way to compensate for how lean naturals end up getting. I, I think it's more to do with the fact that the people that are getting coached by coaches now naturals are the people that competed in 2018, 2019. <laughs> like yourself, they've, they've taken it secondhand knowledge from someone who's been there and done that for a few years and yeah. passed it on and misconstrued it to someone who's uneducated and they don't really because they've only recently or singularly been through that process once or twice they don't fully understand the implications that that can have to somebody else because they're inexperienced with working with, with, with someone that's not their own body and they're basing their whole experience going through that process on their own experience yeah, and it's absolutely context dependent and, and down to that individual. Like Phil said, if if you've got someone who's like, I don't know, 210 pounds and is already like got visible abs and is fairly, you know, lean going into the prep, then how much of a pre-contest would you necessarily need for natural? Probably not as much as let's say me, who put who's like been in offseason for like over two years now and has pushed up massively in that time. Um, like, obviously, I'll need to, like, drop probably 20 pounds or something going into it, you know? But if you're aware of it. Exactly, yeah. And, and it's it's down to, again, that, that idea of understanding what's best for that individual. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it is a funny one. Natural bodybuilding is a funny one. Yeah. Because... I think people get a bit wound up in the sense that you want to see progress, right? You want to know you're growing. So that's where scale weight starts coming into play. I see a lot of naturals obsessed over scale weight more than anyone else does. Yeah. And I think it's that any weight is good weights at that point. And it's very easy to get into a routine of, oh, I'm growing, I'm growing, I'm growing. I'm not that heavy. Yeah. I've I've been over 100 kilos once. And that was just post-show. I got up to 103. But for a very brief period. Now the heaviest I got up to is like 99.2. But you are a lot more muscular than you were yeah. a year but, ago. But that's what I mean. But I'm still nowhere near as heavy as some of these other guys you see. No. I'm way bigger than them. So it's, yeah. it, it's, it, it's again, it's just a, a lack of focus, I think. So like one guy... Again, one guy now that I've been speaking to, he's phenomenal natural. He's got probably the craziest legs of any natural I've ever seen. His legs almost don't match his upper body. Like he's he's got bigger legs than most guys on gear. Genuinely ridiculous. Jermaine, you might know. Do you know Lewis Jones? Yes, I think I do. Yeah, uh, he's honestly his legs are stupid if you see them. But yeah. even he's admitted, I believe that. He feels like he's got a little bit too soft, yeah. If you like in off season, and obviously that wasn't really. He said, you know, if he did things differently, yeah. he wouldn't. But you just don't need as much food as you think. If, if people get hungry in an off season, they instantly think they're not growing. Yeah. It's like, well, 
after a certain point, your food's high enough. You still are. You know, you can't constantly keep pushing. It's your stomach can only take so much in that sense. If you're, if every time you get hungry, you just push food again and again and again, and your stomach's constantly being at the point where it's stressed to its absolute limit for a whole year, yeah. you're going to run into issues at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose that's what a big thing we haven't spoke about is gut health. Yeah. Let's see. We, can, we can wrap up final 10, 15 minutes with that. Yeah. Yeah. So gut health, it's, again, it's all good and well if you can eat a lot of food, but if you can't absorb it, what's the point? Yeah. There's, I remember there's one guy that came to me and he's got serious issues with acid reflux uh, from a previous coach. He's got scarring on his esophagus as well from basically having, well, constant acid yep. reflux. And so at the point now, there's certain foods you can't eat mm. uh, because it, it like scratch or irritates on the way down. Uh, but it turns out he was allergic to a protein in rice. And so, he, so rice, you know, people think, oh, rice is great. Everyone can eat rice. He can't. If he eats a lot of it, it messes him up ba- badly. Uh, but even him, he was, he got to the point where he was on basically liquid diet. Everything was shakes and blended and just loads of peanut butter and everything in something. And he was um, on about 4,000 calories at that point, I think. Uh, he's the same guy that I cut down really low on a cruise. And on a cruise, the lowest his food got to was 3,850. So he was getting, he was growing on 4,000, but getting fatter, not necessarily more muscular. But then on 150 calories less of actual food that agreed with him, with his stomach being in a good place, he got leaner than his show. And then from that point, it's maintained hunger. So there's a few ways. So different foods will affect digestion, right? You know, you can eat, let's say you you don't have any allergies, you're completely fine. So the combination of foods will change. So if you just have, let's say, chicken and rice, it's going to go down very easily. If you have chicken rice with olive oil, it's going to take longer to digest. You get to, if you're eating massive amounts and you get to the next meal and you've still got leftover food that hasn't cleared, you start compounded meals on top of each other. Of that's so. when you kind of start to ruin your digestion. That's because you're starting to put a lot of strain on it. Mm when you're releasing insulin to digest meals, don't forget there's other enzymes that come from your pancreas too. Pancreatic enzymes that are need for digestion. Yeah. Pancreas can only do so many things at once. When your blood sugar is high, your stomach is full. When it's low, your stomach's emptying and it's in your intestines at that point being absorbed. So if you, if you're kind of some uh, again, I, I can be anal, and there's been points where I've made people really track their blood sugar after like every single meal. Oh, postman's here, dog's gonna go nuts. No, he's fine, he's just crying. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, sometimes I, I, I might be a little bit anal and make them track things for like a week, every single meal, and so on. But if you get into a rhythm where you know what food works. And you know that when you get into your next meal, your stomach's basically clear, your blood sugar's low enough, you're in a good spot. You're getting enough food, you're in a good spot. And then you can slowly start pushing up and pushing up and pushing up. Uh, protein, again, if you need to push protein up, most people are like, how on earth do you eat so much protein? There's a few ways you can start off doing this. So you can start having, let's say, 100, 150 gram portions of meat, which I 
again, I don't know if what normal people think of that, but I think that's a relatively normal, small amount. That's yeah. It's like 40, 37.5 grams of protein. Yeah, it's, like it's nothing crazy at all. Like most people can handle that in a meal, right? But then what you can start to do is also have EAAs throughout the day. Something I've been something I've done when I'm when I'm going through a flare up or sick, despite yeah. the digestion issues being second hand to an autoimmune disease. Yeah. Because when we spoke to Joe Binley last year, it's sort of put that idea in my head. So but because yeah. I was having bad digestion, I decreased the total food volume in terms of protein from that. So I dropped from 150 to 100 and replaced the remaining amount with an AAA or something I like think, that. What do you call it? He uh, calls it amino pulsing, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's a common one. And then what... So I hired a coach uh, a couple of weeks ago now, Dominic Cardone, shameless plug. Um, and what he's actually been doing is, which again, I didn't really think about, uh, he's been doing EAAs in between meals, but with glutamine as well. Hmm. Yep. So I used to do a lot of glutamine in the morning, mainly for gut health. He will actually do it between meals as well. Yeah. I've, dr- I've drank it throughout the day now for... Yeah. A long time, just in anything, in orange juice, in really squash. Interesting, actually. Yeah, because I, the best I felt when I was prepping, actually, I will say, the best I visually looked as well was when I was using EAAs, like, throughout a day. That's what I mean. And it's, yeah, it, it will take the bloat right down. So, obviously, you'll just go straight, that you'll be absorbed. Yeah. So, EAAs is a good one, um, especially if you're trying to get someone on higher protein. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll go from EAAs with the meat to then just plain meat at that new amount slowly. And then I'll add in EAAs again to that. And then so before you know it, you're at like two grams per pound with a bunch of carbs and you're hungry. You're very hungry. And that's the case. All of them, everyone at some point in their check-ins tells me, even though they're on loads of food, like I'm starting to get hungry again. Great. I'll keep them hungry for a couple of weeks bash a bunch more food in. Uh, but again, so digestion, what have we got to think about? There's different stages. Let's say that the easiest one at the start, like chewing your food. Yeah. It's annoying. If you actually make sure you chew your food enough, there's enzymes in your saliva as well. They're going to start breaking down, especially things like um, starch carbohydrates. It's going to start breaking down already just from your saliva. The more you mash up the food, the more surface area it's going to have, the quicker chemical reaction is going to happen with your stomach acid. Then stomach acidity in the morning is typically lower than it will be later on. So this is where things like having apple cider vinegar in the morning have got popular from. It's mainly to spike your acidity levels in the morning to be able to handle more food. Another thing people do is have an acidic fruit. Uh, so they might have something like an orange juice or an orange or grapefruit or pineapple. Pineapple also has bromelain in it, which will break down protein. That's a digestive enzyme. So you can have something like, again, in the morning, some warm water as soon as you wake up with apple cider vinegar in it or some lemon juice. Um, you can also have a probiotic, but I would wait like 15, 20 minutes after you've had something that's going to raise your acidity, yep. after the initial spike's gone down, because you can ruin the... Uh, it degrade, yeah, it ends up degrading the... Um... Exactly. So uh, you can wait a little bit, have that. Uh, then with your meals, you can have, if you're having, especially meats, say like red meat, yeah. if you struggle with it, some people... Different blood types struggle with different foods as well. Uh, but 
you can have digestive enzymes alongside meals to help break down some of the stuff, especially if you've got very uh, starchy carbohydrates, uh, you've got fats in, you've got like a meal that's got a balance of everything that won't typically go down super easy. That's when you can start having that. And it's a good way, again, to get your appetite up. Um, you can do this over a period of time, get your appetite going, and then you can sort of lay off them if you just can't afford them, basically, because uh, you do end up smashing through quite a lot. You can have something like a GDA as well. They are a little bit specific, in my opinion. Um, but again, if you're trying to get a head start on kind of... Sorry, I've got these notifications. If you're trying to get a head start on terms of getting your blood sugar in range and trying to get your stomach to clear, it's a good option. Um, and again, just low in inflammation in general. Then, like I said, EAAs and stuff will work as well. At night, before bed, I like to have a fiber supplement. Um, you, there's one called Metamucil, which is you can get from America in massive packs and it's super cheap. Otherwise, you can pay for more expensive ones like Species Nutrition does Fiberlize, which is, to be honest, it's a lot of money for what it is. It's just it's yeah. basically wood chippings. <laughs> well, it's psyllium husk. Uh, it costs like 35 quid for a bit of that. But it does taste nice. Um, Metamucil, though, generally breaks down better in water and stuff. Uh, I think Project AD do one too called Fiber, but it's not just Fiber. It's got other stuff in it, and that's quite pricey as well. Uh, I think I think AD's one's similar to Redcon's one, mm. whereas it's got fiber in, it's got a green formula, but it's also got um, en enzymes in there as well. Yeah. I think it's also got amino acids in it. It's got oh, really? Yeah, it's got like the ingredient list is massive. I don't know what they put in it, but um, but that one's quite pricey. I think it's like forty-five quid or something. Right. Um, so while we're doing this, so get, you've got the support in terms of digesting your food. You've got your blood sugar not going sky high and being able to clear. And then obviously it's all good putting a bunch of food in it. If you're not getting the food out, you're not really mm -hmm. going to fit anything else in. So that's kind of where fiber comes in. Because uh, unless you are having veg with your meals, it was hard. it's hard to get fiber in. And if you have too much veg with meals, uh, most vegetables, especially things like broccoli, in my opinion, you shouldn't really be eating. Yeah, it's too, too much cruciferous vegetables can cause impaired digestion as well. So. And there's, uh, I, th I think Stan Effordin has made a lot of videos on this. Um, and I remember he shared a website a while ago that it was, it, it was really useful. It basically had all the, it, how gassy certain vegetables are. So things like broccoli are one of the worst. Yeah, things like sprouts are notorious for it. Yeah. Uh, but again, if you've got a lot of gas in your stomach, that's obviously going to affect your digestion as well and um, your appetite. In that sense, you'll, you'll, you'll also have a visual impact as well. So. Yes. So, so this way, a lot of people go wrong on prep, but they end up really bloated because yeah. they're hungry, so they just start smashing vegetables, yeah. <laughs> and it just ruins their gut. Basically, I think that's what also played a role actually in my. Um, little episode yeah my gut issues when i was uh, prepping because it was i was pounding vegetables as i was getting closer to the show um and then as soon as we introduced higher food quantities it was just too much yeah. um and it wasn't a case of me introducing more vegetables it was just more of rice oats whatever and yeah. And that just compounded, and from there there on, it was a struggle. And at the time as well, I was rinsing red meat. 
and red meat for a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize that red meat takes a really long time to digest a really long time. It's like 24 hours or something to fully digest. Yeah. It's way longer than like chicken or even a fatty fish. Like, um, so that's a thing to consider as well. Like the diversity of food choices for sure. But the on, on the veg, so me and prep, I'm based every prep I do. I don't really care about how much veg I have. I'll just, if I'm hungry, I'm just going to eat veg. Yeah. Uh, and I'll worry about the bloat later. So I'm basically always bloated. <laughs> like my stomach's massive until about two weeks before. And then I'm just like, all right, I'm actually going to yeah. do this properly now. And I start lowering the veg and having the amounts I'm meant to have. And then my stomach just comes straight in. Yeah. Uh, but again, some people, it really affects their digestion as well. So they can't necessarily do that. Uh, yeah. But most of the veg I have on prep will be something like cucumber. Mm. So it's, it's very, majority of it's just water anyway. So yeah, exactly. It's got fiber in it. It's got it's got water. If I was to have the same amount with something like green beans, I'd probably have an issue. Yeah, you'd be fucked. <laughs> <laughs> but things like cucumber or lettuce. Yeah. Yeah. Really Any bad. sort of anything salad related, you tend to be all right. Obviously, yeah. the more crazy you get with it, like peppers, there's more calories in it and stuff. Yeah. But anything that that tastes nice cold is usually okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, that's stupid that's a, and as bro as that sounds, but it's, if you can find it at, at the Miller and Carter, yeah, happy days. Yeah. That is a good way of putting it. Anything that tastes good cold, it's usually fine. <laughs> that's a good observation. But yeah, so that's the, the lowdown on gut health. And it, it is really important. It's as soon as, you're, as soon as your gut health goes, you're fucked. Yeah. Like you won't be able to grow properly. You won't be able to come in shape. Yeah. Thanks for the encouragement, Phil. You've done pretty well considering. Yeah. Yeah. Considering it's it's been well, I actually looked at it and nineteen months out of the past thirty-six I have been in ill health and still managed to put on a decent amount of, of muscle. So yeah. It's because your body rebounds, does a show rebound every time. Yeah. yeah. It's not a good thing, though, because it fucks me up in the long term. Yeah. One thing to mention on gut health, um, on in terms of how it reacts with steroids, mm. some steroids will have a massive effect on your gut, like a negative effect. Yeah. Uh, the, pro- probably the worst is EQ. Okay. And people won't necessarily know that because... There's not really any studies in on people with EQ because it's, well, it's not meant for people. Yeah. Uh, but EQ can cause ulcerative colitis. It can cause leaky gut. It, it's known for causing stomach ulcers. It's, wow. it, it can be really bad and it's That's not a temporary thing. Is that a very sort of big thing anecdotally then? But... Yes, yes. It, it, and it, it's known for doing that. Doctors that are specialised in that will know about EQ causing those issues. Wow. You won't really hear about it in England. You'll hear about it from doctors in America that are special. You know, the, the massive HRT clinics and so yeah. on over there. Well, go over there being on EQ. They often yeah. have serious issues with their stomach. It's funny you said that because obviously when I'm discussing things with it, because I, I changed my consultant, simply put, and one of the first things, because I was like, yeah, don't want this to impact on, training performance and stuff and she's like oh you're an athlete i was like no but i have aspirations to be a capacity bodybuilder not oh do you take steroids i was like no and i was like oh, okay because there's certain things that can cause this so i presume it's talking about eq so well uh, trend also does a lot of people yeah. get acid reflux off trend 
but again, that's kind of for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Tren, it massively stimulates your nervous system. It kind of puts mm-hmm. you in that fight or flight, if you like. Them. It's, it's anti-estrogenic, effectively, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing, not, because most... Not anything that causes digestive disease like issue is probably related to autoimmune. And the issue with people who have autoimmune immune problems is their immune system is far too good than the average person. Like it has nothing. It gets bored and has fuck all else to do. So it starts attacking itself. So yeah. if you put yourself in that fight mode all the time and you're pissed off and well, aggressive, it, things like it's that. Not just that. Have, you, have you heard of people mention that? Again, this is a bit overkill. I don't personally do it, but people say, you know, you should wait till you're in your parasympathetic state to yeah. eat. Yeah. Uh, trend puts you out of that yeah. constantly. Mm-hmm. So your, ba- your body's basically already not really going to accept food as well. Because mm-hmm. that's why people can't sleep and they struggle to sleep yep. and stuff. The more you can do to bring yourself back into a more calm state, um, obviously you'll be able to eat better. But So trend, a lot of time, causes acid reflux, mainly for that reason. It's not a yep. direct response like EQ is to the stomach. Uh, but EQ is... Again, it's seen as something very mild. EQ's got a myriad of health effects that aren't necessarily great, especially on estrogen. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. It crashes your estrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't realize it because they'll get blood tests on it and they'll say their estrogen is normal or high. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they've got a high sensitivity one, their estradiol, which is what we actually care about, would be crashed. Yeah. And it's usually estrogen which is about 4% as potent as estradiol, that's raised. Tests can't tell the difference. Yeah. Um, so estrogen, again, is protective for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, people should associate estrogen with holding water. It's not the estrogen that does it. It's actually angiotensin 2, yeah. which, again, has a huge amount of other negatives on, like kidneys, the rest of your health. Yeah. Um, so, but, and it will have an effect on your digestion as well. So, yeah, drugs will play a massive role. Mm. Very, very good. Um, anything else we want to talk about in a wrap-up thoughts for this? What time is it? it it's it, five to twelve. So we're all right. Um, Any closing comments? In terms of what we spoke about now, there's a lot of things I could talk about <laughs> yeah. for hours. We'll get you back. Uh, on. We'll but in terms of no, I think I think that the, the key is. To have a productive off-season, you really have to kind of take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You can't chop and change what you do all the time. Yeah. And you need to stop getting obsessed with scale weight. I think that's... If you're eating enough, your lifts are you know, progressing, you'll be able to do, handle more volume, everything's going well, you're looking better, you're feeling good, you're going to have a much more productive off-season than if someone's constantly at their limit. Yeah. When's your body going to grow better when it's in a healthier state or when it's not? Yeah. It's the same as if you try and come in shape on stage and your kidneys are fucked, you yeah. won't. No, you're going to hold water, you're going to look soft. So Exactly. As so. someone who has pretty much just now peaked in terms of like how, how big you're going to get getting yeah. right at the end of my off-season now, um, I can feel it and I... I in a, in a way, I'm already like, oh, fuck, now would be the time to drop weight. But I'm so close now to the end of an off-season window that I'm just going to, for the next two months, 
pretty much sit around maintenance and um and yeah. wait until i can get to that that pre-contest yeah. period and and that's going to be the move going forward just in- increase your volume or do a little bit of cardio additionally or something like that and you'll you'll maintain until that point for sure for sure but no thanks for coming on phil thanks for having me it was, it was fun right. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, anytime. Very interesting conversation and one that I think viewers both on both sides of the spectrum in terms of competitive stuff. So Natties and, and Enhance will appreciate this. Um, and to anyone who's interested in pharmacology as well. Um, and just general health, really. Yeah. It all stems from that anyway. So Yeah. So uh, yeah. out there, keep yourself healthy. And um, you'll be winning shows in no time. If um, if anybody wants to find out more about you and your coaching, where can they find you? Uh, mainly on Instagram. My website is terrible at the moment. I barely use it. It needs an update. So just Phil Samarkis on Instagram. You can find everything you need on there. Good stuff. All righty. All right, guys. Awesome. This has been episode 48 of Off Script. And we'll see you in the next one. Thank you, guys.